Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest today is engineer, producer, educator, and head of strategy and partnerships at Lander Audio, Daniel Rowland. But first of all, can AI art or AI music be copyrighted? AI meaning artificial intelligence based or created by a machine. It looks like it can't. The Copyright Office recently rejected an attempt to copyright a piece of art that was made strictly by AI because it, and I'm quoting here, lacked the required human authorship. The picture was titled A Recent Entrance to Paradise, and it was created by a system of algorithms that was dubbed the Creativity Machine. Dr. Stephen Thaler, the man behind it, listed the program as the artwork's author, and then he attempted to copyright the artwork on its behalf. The Copyright Office came back and said, works produced by a machine or mechanical process that lack intervention or creative input from a human author cannot be registered. So that's for artwork. What about music? AI music has been around for a long time. And actually we can go back to 1951 to Alan Turing with his experiments of computer generated melodies. As early as 1965, the Copyright Office noted that this is going to be a problem. So we've waited all this time until we've finally come to this. Of course, you know, the AI is already composing soundtracks and songs that sound like your favorite artists. And there's all sorts of examples of songs that's AI driven on just about every streaming service now. What seems to be the differentiator here is if you use it as a collaborative tool and a human is involved, in other words, it's just a tool for the human to create, then it's going to be okay. But if you let the AI create music or art or whatever creative endeavor it might be on its own, then that's not going to fly, at least in terms of copyright. So everyone wondered how copyright for AI was going to play out, and now we think we know. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. Don't forget about my online courses on audio mixing, production, and music business success at bobbyosinskicourses.com. Also, get an expert analysis and objective opinion of your songs and mixes as a member of my Hitmakers Club, along with what makes a song a hit, and Q&A and advice sessions every month. Go to hitmakersclub.com to learn more. Now let's talk about recording resolution. The reason why I bring it up is there are a lot of students that are asking the question or I see them send in mixes that are all at a sampling rate of 44.1 kilohertz. And I always tell them you shouldn't be doing anything less than 96K or at the very, very least 48K. I have to say that I haven't done anything at less than 96K in 20 years, maybe more. There's a lot of reasons for this. First of all, if you're doing a major label project, the delivery specs are going to state they want it at 96K. Why is this? Well, we're starting to see it already with Apple Music, with Amazon Music, with Tidal, of course, that there's a high-res aspect to what they're doing. So this is usually a different tier, but it turns out that just about every streaming service at some point in time is going to go high-res, or at least what we consider high-res right now, 96.24. In other words, 96 kilohertz as a sampling rate and 24 bits. Now, 48.24 is the standard for film and television. 
So if you're working in those particular areas, still many people will work at 96K and then just bounce it down to 48K, but certainly you don't want to do 44.1. There's no reason right now that anybody should record at 44.1. You get zero advantage out of it. Now, I have to tell you, and maybe you've heard this from me before, but I've done the tests where we've set up three different rigs, one at 48K, one at 96K, and one at 192K. And then we recorded the exact same thing into all three rigs. The difference between 48 and 96 was substantial. You could hear it. But when we went from 96 to 192, it was amazing. It sounded so much clearer and cleaner. Now, the fact is 192 has some ways to go before we accept that. Already in jazz and in classical, that's being used as kind of a standard sample rate, a standard resolution. But there are some limitations, especially on some workstations and plugins. Some plugins can't work at that sample rate. And we find that some workstations, you get half the tracks and half the processing power. So yes, there's some limitations there. And that's kind of going away as our computers get a lot more powerful. And of course, hard drive space is very, very inexpensive these days. So the only thing I can tell you is, if you want to future-proof your recordings, if you want to make sure that down the road, these are not going to be falling by the wayside or thought of as something that's kind of old, you want to record at 9624. You have a lot of alternatives at this point. You can downsample it to just about anything you want from there, but you don't gain anything when you upsample. So 9624 is really the best and it's something that you should consider. My guest this week is Daniel Rowland, who's an audio engineer, producer, educator, head of strategy and partnerships at Lander Audio, and a longtime professor at MTSU in Nashville. Daniel has been part of numerous international tours, produced the music for an Oscar-winning Pixar film, and mastered multi-platinum Grammy-nominated albums, while working on projects for artists as varied as Nine Inch Nails, Seal, Meek Mill, Philip Glass, and Gwen Stefani, along with dozens of Disney properties such as Star Wars and Marvel. Daniel's work with online mastering service Lander to refine its AI mastering engine and develop numerous virtual instruments, plugins, and other products. He also helps craft acquisition and partnership deals with a wide range of startups and iconic brands and artists. During the interview, we spoke about distance audio learning, the unexpected uses for Lander, his take on the newest music tech, and much more. I spoke with Daniel from a studio in Los Angeles. Let's talk about how you got into the business. Yeah, man. So I, I came in like a lot of people. I mean, I came in as a guitar player. So, you know, trying to be a rock star at 15 and and did that for about 10 years in Charleston, South Carolina. And then, you know, at some point decided I needed to go to rehab or college. So I went to college and, uh, and went uh, for seven years, went through and got a master's degree in, in bachelor's in music technology. So I started teaching first, kind of interestingly enough, before I actually was had much of a professional career. And uh, through kind of teaching while I was getting my grad degree, I met Adrian Ballou from King Crimson and, and you know, David Bowie and Talking Heads and Zap and all that stuff. And I uh, started building all his guitar effects, digital guitar effects and designing his guitar systems and built a studio and engineered. And then eventually we started co-producing together. And that was kind of my entry point is with Adrian and did hundreds of songs and got to work with a lot of my idols and Nine Inch Nails and Pixar and did it, got an Academy Award with them. And 
so that was kind of the thing. And, and um, we built some apps together as well, building things that we wanted to exist for crazy effects processing or like an album that would never play the same way twice and all this stuff. And as I was presenting that at South by Southwest, Lander approached me. And that was about six and a half years ago. And that's uh, that's how I kind of found my way more, more formally into the tech space uh, than kind of what we were doing at the time. You were also teaching at MTSU too, right? Yeah, I still teach. I've got 80 students right now at MTSU and uh, I will teach, I will, yeah, I've taught at Belmont and Art Institute for about seven years, but MTSU, I've been there since I was a student and uh, I will be there until they kick me out. So teaching, I get to do so much cool stuff, man, but teaching is one of those things and you probably, you're obviously the ultimate teacher. I, you, I feel like you were, have been teaching me for 20 years. Effectively, it's one of the reasons I'm in the industry is a lot of your books and uh, I'll, I'll do it for free. I do it until I'm, you know, yeah, retired because it's it's the most fulfilling part of my career, definitely. Are you on site or are you doing it remotely? I was on site back in the day, but I, I was started to tour a lot internationally with various bands and uh, I just couldn't be there anymore. So it just happened to coincide with an opening uh, for an online position that a friend of mine, Nathan Adam, had. Uh, and he he kind of passed that down to me. So geez, for almost a decade now, I've been fully online. So I live in uh, Los Angeles and West Hollywood and teach in Nashville. Boy, so many people <laughs> would love that situation. It's awesome. <laughs> There's challenges, but no, I mean, I, I, I it's, it works. It only works online education works better. I think I t I'm a better teacher teaching remotely for what I teach, which is like advanced pro tools and MIDI and some things like that. It doesn't work obviously for studio production classes as well. But uh, yeah, if you can if you can do it properly, you can help a lot more people doing remote education than I think you can even in person. Yeah, I have some friends that are teachers in various schools around here, and they're saying, "I don't know how to do this remotely. It's some of it is just not possible." Yeah, and it's possible, but it's like, are you really giving? Who is it? Is it more convenient for you? Are you really giving as much value to the student as they need, given all the stuff they have to learn anyway? You know, it's. It's a challenge. I totally understand how, you know, how that's a thing. But yeah, I'm, I always love talking to people about it because everyone has different strategies about how they approach it to teach different subjects. So, yeah. so it's an emerging space, obviously. And with the metaverse and with AR and all the cool stuff that's coming out, I think it'll even get, get bigger and more effective. Well, it, it was forced on, on them, you know, because of COVID. Yep, of course. So it's not something that anybody would choose. Most people wouldn't choose to do. Yeah, my gig has been helping people pivot to online, you know, people, since I've been doing it for so long, I was kind of like the go-to person, at least at some schools in Nashville to be like, okay, how do we go about doing this? You know, yeah. So it's been, a, it's been a, a journey. It's been fun though. Let's talk a little bit about Lander because you've been with them for quite a while now. You know, it's really interesting because I know online mastering has gotten better. I can remember when it first started and I tried it and I was like, eh, I don't know. But now- It was terrible. I, I, well, yeah. <laughs> But now it's pretty good. And it's funny because just earlier I had a Q&A session with some of my students and one came up and said, I had a music supervisor who came to me and asked me for my 90s album, but it has to be a little more powerful. What should I do? And I said, well, I would go online, go do online mastering because it's going to save you some dough and it's going to sound a lot better and it's going to be really easy. I wouldn't have said that you know, four or five years ago, but now it's getting really good. So anyway, Lander was the first in that, right? Yeah, we were. Yeah, I, I, I came in on, on board with Lander, I guess, the, on their year anniversary. So they'd been out for about a year before that. And similar to you, I, I came on board as a mastering engineer at the time, right? 
And as someone who like, I like the idea of it. It just didn't sound particularly good, but like every technology, I mean, Pro Tools wasn't Pro Tools 15, 20 years ago, right? Everything evolves and you have to give things space to do that. So I was, so yeah, I came on board with kind of with that mindset and with a mindset of like, it's funny, we could get into this maybe later, but I talked to a lot of people over the years, right? Who have various reactions to machine learning and AI being involved in production tools. And it's like, I always approached it not as it was going to take a job for me, but it was going to, you know, give an opportunity and empower the 90% of musicians who will never hire a mastering engineer and maybe eventually get them to the point where they, they could. And that's actually what it's turned out has happened, right? It's like mastering didn't go away. Like all these, it's really just kind of educated a whole new generation of kids on what mastering is and people using it for stuff that's not even mastering related, right? Lander, it's like when you build any piece of tech, people take it in directions. You're like, oh, I had no idea you'd use it to, to master 400 gunshots for a film. You know, okay, that's cool. Really? That's a new one. It's a new one. Yeah. And people, people use it um, for their mix stems all the time and never actually master anything with it. Like the final mix they're using it. They like how it sounds on drums. Great. It's just another tool, you know, it's, so it's been really cool to learn from our community, which is now, I mean, we have, I think, 4 million active accounts or something like that. It's, it's, it's grown dramatically. Daniel, did it get better because of the machine learning aspect of it? Or was there something that was manually, physically done to it to make things sound better? It definitely. There definitely was. So it was uh, part of it. Yes, the machine learning side of it improved. But the two big things that I, I, I would point to that helped improve it are not just building our own internal DSP, but going out and saying, okay, what tools do I use and what tools to colleagues of mine use? Do you use when you're mastering things and going and licensing that and and automating those tools, as opposed to trying to build everything ourselves, we had to get to a certain size before we could do that. That definitely made an improvement. And we're still doing that. We're still like looking at new technologies that's out there. And Oh, can this help? Can Because Lander's pretty nuanced at this point in the way that it addresses genre and and it picks different processors and arranges them in different orders for, for it's nuts, man. Like it's now it's beyond me. It's, it's graduated beyond my understanding, but it's, that was one thing. And the other thing that we did is, so I lead a team of mastering engineers there under our pro services division. And we all do, we do only human mastering. So we have deals with the majors with Warner. We do thousands of tracks for Disney music group, et cetera, et cetera. And everything, every knob that we turn, the engine learns from, and it compares to what it would do. And it's, it's not just my, you know, master it's, we have several people, engineers, master the same thing. So it kind of takes an average of what we do. And that, even though that's taken years and and obviously a ton of data to be useful, it's really started to have an impact on the engine making decisions that, that are very similar to what we would make. What I like about it is the fact that it has learned from real people that are doing it all the time and will give you a good result because of that. One of the problems I have with mastering plugins is the fact that they're so powerful that people tend to try to use everything and they use it in excess. So they wind up making things worse instead of better. And that's why I always say, oh, wait, you know, do you really want to do this? Because it's not something that's as easy as you think. It's not just a plug-in. You put something in, it comes out. Yep. I've mutilated more music than I would care to admit to in my, especially in my early days, right? Playing with exciters and all the stuff that, you know, the ear candy things that you really, when you can't hear the difference between limiter, limiter algorithms, you can't hear compressor topologies and you don't have, you haven't, you know, built up that skill set yet you're running a risk of really doing more harm than good when you start to play around with tools like that, especially when you're trying to get stuff loud and there's a nuance to doing, you know, all the stuff that you're familiar with as well. So I agree. And it's funny, a lot of people, 
use Lander for, for referencing. So they'll master with Lander. And I think I mentioned this before, they'll kind of play around with plugins to try to approximate that, or they'll go revisit their mix. If Lander maybe didn't do something exactly. It's, it's been, we get a lot of people telling us that it's kind of an educational tool for them as much as it is just an end to get an end result for master to release or something, which is another one of those kind of intriguing things. But I totally agree. Yeah. You, you gotta be careful with, uh, all the amazing mastering plugins that are out there if you don't know what you're doing. But that's the same thing with going to a mastering engineer. If you sit in on a session, you're hearing things that you would never hear otherwise. You're hearing it in a better listening environment than you would ever have. And you're learning along the way. It's like, oh, wait, okay, I'm not going to do that next time. Right. Yeah, exactly. If you're smart, you'd do that. I'm not sure everybody's, you know, will, will actually go to that, <laughs> especially now. Go to the, yeah do a visit, do a session with the actual engineer. And these days engineers charge more if you want to roll by. I'm, yeah. I'm one of them too. It's like, oh, I like my own little thing. It's, it's been interesting. I mean, on Lander now, not to belabor the Lander point too much, but you know, we have a whole marketplace of mastering engineers now. So it's like, we actually, if there's people who come to Lander and use all the other stuff we do, which is not, not related to mastering and hire an actual mastering engineer and maybe use our distribution or use a collaboration thing. So it's, it's become this kind of like, whatever you need, it's there. It's not all about AI or all about machine learning or anything like that, which it kind of was in the early days. That's some things I didn't realize were happening as well is because of the additional features that are available. As you say, that there's a marketplace and there's uh, uh, revisions and... Yeah. So, I mean, so like if we isolate it just to the mastering, it's a, it's a pretty broad platform at this point. So I, I won't go into everything, but yeah. like, yeah, even with the mastering, like the idea that it used to be, you would just upload your file, Lander would pull it apart, do its, you know, do its thing. And you'd have a couple of settings, like kind of dynamics related. And then we added some settings around, okay, what's kind of flavor of master do you want? Something more modern, something more classic, that kind of thing. And then we added revisions, which is where you can go in and it's almost like you're having a conversation with an engineer where it's like, Hey, is it a little too sibilant? What do you mm -hmm. feel about the base? How do you feel about all these different things? And you go through and you just kind of check things off. And then we give you a revision based upon the decisions you made, as opposed to giving you an EQ or something that's more technical, which is obviously something we're trying to avoid. And uh, yeah, we just kind of took that aesthetic and built out, you know, everything from kind of moving to the right to distribution and then moving to the left, you know, the creator journey to build virtual instruments and plugins and, real-time and asynchronous project management and collaboration and samples and just all sorts of stuff now that build out, you know, what we've, what we're, our goal is, is to be for like 10 bucks or whatever a month it is to basically give everybody a great starting point for everything they could basically need outside of a DAW. Um, and then feel, you know, then people tack on obviously third-party tools from native and from Isotope and all the other amazing companies that are out there to kind of augment that. And we found that that's a pretty cool spot to be in for us. Was the idea behind it originally that AI would drive everything and drive all the other products as well? No, it wasn't. It's, it's, there are, we're definitely working on some cool stuff where we're leveraging what is a core competency of ours, which is the AI side of things into some cool products uh, on the vocals. I mean, we acquired Synchro Arts this past year, so some great vocal technology we now have access to, but no, I, I kind of, one of the things I would like uh, we're working on on the machine learning and AI side of things is less about powering every single product we have and more about helping people, shepherding people through their journey and exposing them to what they need when they need it, if that makes any sense. Kind of like not, I hate to use Amazon as an example, but where they kind of, they know your preferences and they kind of suggest things and kind of guide you toward things, which can be good and bad, but doing that kind of within our ecosystem to again, remove as much friction as, as possible from the decisions that people make and the things that we think they 
they want and, and need. So even connections on our network and where they, if we can analyze their music and say, oh man, you're really, you're struggling with this. We can try to connect them with people to collaborate with that can, that can come teach them or maybe even get hired to help them or something like that. So there's a lot there. One of the cool things about AI is, and I think you talked about it before, that there's some people that are hesitant to use it or fearful of it. A lot of people think it's going to take their job away. And the way I've always looked at it is, if this makes things go faster, I'm all over it. it you know, because really that's where it's, who wants to spend an extra hour doing something that could have been done in minutes without you thinking about it? Yeah. And that's, I think that's, there's a kind of a dividing line there. I respect anybody who has trepidation about AI and, and music tools. I mean, there's, you can't disrespect that. I get it. I was one of those people at one point and still will be one of those people about certain uses of it. Right. And I think that's where it's important to point out when it comes to automating fairly rudimentary, rudimentary tasks that we're all like, Oh, we have to go in and, you know, whatever restoration is an example, right? I'll happily, man, come please automate everything that has to do with with restoration. I'll, I'll be happy about that. But other things less so. I mean, you know, the lightning rod at one point was was Lander, right? I used to walk around with a big target on my back at AES and conferences like that when I was kind of one of the early adopters, which now is not so much the case. Now it's more like the AI composition side of things, right? When AI is stepping in and, you know, I love the idea of AI composer assistance. I think there's some really cool stuff out there that help people you know, get outside of their comfort zone as far as their habits of composing and coming up with stuff and also just empowers them to make music that would be difficult for them to make otherwise. But when it's used to completely replace someone and, you know, that a lot of the sync stuff goes away, a lot of the ad work goes away, that's the lightning rod at the moment and understandably so. So, I mean, you saw Apple bought an AI uh, composition company last week. Uh, ByteDance owns his own juke deck for years. So that's, yeah, I end up having a lot of those conversations these days, less so about mastering and mixing. And where do you come down on that? I mean, kind of what I just said, I, I love it when it's built in. I mean, I would love those things to be built into DAWs to assist people, like a lot work alongside them, kind of like my collaborator when I don't have one. And I can, it reacts to me. I react to it, it and I come up with something, you know, that new genres will probably come out of that, right? There's some cool stuff that I think will happen that'll make music much more interesting than it has been for a minute. Even though I love the, the completely autonomous AI composers, I think it's interesting, you're right, just as a nerd. Yeah, I mean, it's totally going to be used to replace people's jobs, right? That's that, that I don't know if that's going to... Obviously, there's more need for music right now than there's ever been. There's more people making music right now than there's ever been. And I figure, I think there's a way to kind of tie those things together without completely automating the humans out of that. So... Yeah, I don't know. I'm worried about it. I know I'm close friends with the companies that are working on it. That's all great, but it's something to keep an eye on. And I'm, you know, I lecture, I've got a lecture at a college in London to their composer students about this. They're all so scared. I'm like, we're composer students and look at all what's coming. And I'm like, it's cool. You know, there's, and there'll be not to be long winded, but there'll be new jobs created out. There always is, right? Whenever something comes in like that, there's always some path to new new gigs and a new economy and new jobs that come out as a result of it. We're not really going to be able to stop it. It's not something Lander, Lander is actually positioned against that. They, our CEO is adamant that we're not getting into that space, but I don't know. It's, it's something to keep an eye on and, uh, you know, we'll see where we are in a year or two because it's evolving pretty quickly. You know, you mentioned about how there's a movement where all this is possible that anybody can get into, that it makes it easy enough. Anybody can get into it and make music, which doesn't necessarily mean it's good music. As a matter of fact, with what is it, 60,000 songs a day being uploaded to um, That's Spotify? How many of them could be good? I remember having a conversation with Keith Barr. Keith Barr was one of the founders of Alesis and was the brains behind the ADAT. 
And I can remember three, four years into the ADAT having a conversation with him and him just lamenting the whole thing and saying, I thought that this was going to make it so we get a new Beatles and it never happened. It was the same vision. It's like the more people that can do this or use this to record at home, the more better music we're going to have out of it. And it's debatable whether that happened or not. I mean, you know, obviously it did a lot of good for a lot of people, but it may not have had the results that the founder, that the creator had, had envisioned. I think tech rarely does. You know, I think that's, it, it always, it, it's interesting. So we know because of the because of the ADAT, lots more music was probably made, right? Because you could have home studios and even my, you know, I had an ADAT rig back in the day. But, you know, with that, what proportion of that is good versus kind of throwaway music? I don't know. I mean, ultimately, to me, ultimately, more music getting made. And I used to be so anti the thing I'm saying right now. More music getting made is rarely a bad thing. You know, it sucks. It does suck if you're a professional musician and you're, you really are hard, work hard at your craft. And you see things come up that maybe aren't so good that that gain visibility via social media or you know to get traction, and you you can be become a little jaded to that, right? When you put in, a, it's like in the NFT space, right? There's artists who spend a lot of time being amazing artists, and then there's little pixel pixelated, you know, MP or NFT stuff that comes out that that sells for a lot of money. You can get jaded towards that if you're if you are really honing your craft, and I get it, but that's just kind of part of art, man. Is like it's ultimately it's it's the listener, it's the viewer that makes a decision on what's good. And that it's all such so subjective. Yeah. The way I look at that is it, it's never really changed. I mean, it's always been that way to some degree. It's always been hard to make it in the business. It's always been hard to be a professional musician or an artist. It's always been hard to, you know, make any headway in the business it's no different today. You know, it's always been the same thing where you get some really flash bubblegummy type of things that all of a sudden are a big hit and you think, well, why, what did I do? But that's just the nature of the yeah. business. It is. And, you know, I think that maybe the difference, it's probably not that much different now, but maybe it's, it's, it's more bl- blown up now is that you really do have to keep up with trends, not just in music, but in technology, right? If you're not leveraging technology trends along with your music, if you're not, you know, looking at the latest greatest social media, if you're not keeping up with NFTs, if you're not looking at metaverse, you know, it's all, you have to kind of be looking five years ahead to leverage your art and get it in front of many, as many people as possible. That used to be like record labels. Okay. Well, at least it's compartmentalized to that. Whereas now with the onus being so much on the independent creator themselves to, to leverage those technologies, it's a lot. To, to keep up with when you're also trying to be an artist and probably work a regular job at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's way too much. I mean, it's, it's yeah. really hard to do one of those things. Well, let alone you start <laughs> to true. pile them on to an artist. Boy, I don't know how, you know, some of them do it. Yeah. But it's also exciting, you know, at the same time, right. It's also, if you, if you're, if you've got the hustle and you're willing to do it, there's a lot, you, you know, there's a lot of opportunity right now, but you're right. There's also a lot of noise. It's your job to keep on top of everything and, and look at those trends that you just spoke of. What do you see? Is there something that we're not noticing besides the obvious? That's a good question. I mean, yeah. So my gig is to meet with, I, I don't know, I probably meet with 10 startups a week across, you know, anything related to music and, you know, Web3 and all that kind of stuff. And I just love that chatting with people so much about what they're doing. I mean, it's right now, I think it's the obvious things. I mean, you know, this this year and next year will be, as you probably, you know, everyone's heard, the the year of the music web three sort of thing, right? That actually getting a little bit more traction and getting more fleshed out. And there's definitely gonna be there's already been some 
some pitfalls to that and some mistakes made, and I'm sure there will be more, but there'll be some successes too. So I really see the growth of the direct-to-fan engagement on the artist side of things through you know fractionalization of of royalties and things like that becoming I'm, I'm involved in some of that stuff myself but then really fostering more of the fan to fan kind of economy where you know artists are by sharing their ip allowing fans to build little cottage industries around that and, and work with each other where the artist is getting revenue from that so i think there's some really cool ways how that can kind of you know sprawl out to help an artist have a community and an ecosystem that supports them in what is a relatively non-traditional way, but that Web3 is kind of built for. Are there startups that are looking at that? I'm sure there are. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, there's even bands. There's, you know, the what Avenged Sevenfold is, a, you know, a band that's done some cool stuff there. And um, I'm, I'm working on a project for somebody I would, I think most people would consider the biggest pop artist to ever live that is involved in a fractionalization project that'll be out in about two months. Um, Nas has done some of that, you know, so you see what, what, what I want to see, I'll, I'll, this, I'll put a fine point on this. I'm not interested in f- big famous artists necessarily coming in and selling royalties for tracks that came out years ago to people for at rates that are probably never going to be recouped by the investors. Right. If that draws some eyes and investment to the space, which is necessary, great. But ultimately, how does that serve the middle class of musician that we've been chatting about? The person who is working in a job, they want to quit who wants to build a sustainable career and make low six figures and, and support themselves, understanding they may or may not ever, you know, be Beyonce, which is every, most people, myself included. Right. So that's what I, I want to see this work for those people. So when I kind of step into this space, it's similar to where Lander, the space that Lander occupies, uh, that's kind of what I'm looking at. And I think it's possible. I think right now we're just in the, you know, Snoop Dogg, everybody else kind of coming in and, and Steve Aoki making a fortune that they've built their brands up so that they can do that. And God bless them for it. But I want to make sure we we keep the door open for everybody else. Well, as I would say, making a living is the new success. <laughs> it's true. Yeah, actually, it Well said. Yeah. When I was starting up in the business, again, as a player, and I was in high school and I was playing four and five nights a week. But you could because there are that many venues and it continued for a long time and i made my living and a really good living back then just playing in bands and it could be done now less so probably not not in the same way not in the same well yeah like a lot of things we've been chatting about yes and no right so because i did the same thing i was three four nights a week for about 10 years that's what i did and i made good made good money in a small relatively small town and with a little bit of touring and it was cool I, there's no way I'd be paying to play at a lot of venues right now. It's the opposite, the way that would work, or at least the ones I would want to be at. So, you know, it's it's where the, you know, live streaming comes in and Twitch comes in and Metaverse, Roblox. I was just in a, a thing with Roblox right before I jumped in with you. And there's so much, I mean, talking about bands being formed natively in Roblox and how, what that's going to do. And, you know, as frightening as that can be, like for people who maybe aren't, haven't, dip their toe in that water. It's also exciting. I mean, I can be an 80 year old guitar player and roll into Roblox and no one would know and form a band and be cool. And I mean, you know, you can, there's some of the anonymity of it is it can make for a longer career potentially where you wouldn't necessarily have that in a, in a traditional pop scene or something like that. I'm just kind of throwing out weird examples, but so I think it's still there, but it just requires, like we were talking about a lot of learning, right? It requires like being, being willing to kind of embrace the, where things are going as other things are changing because tech always changes stuff and it always brings new opportunities and closes other things. down. You know, it's funny because the people that buy my courses, I always thought it would be the ones that use my book in school and there's a lot of them, but no, 
it's people that are 40 years old plus. And a lot of it is, well, I'm just getting back into this. I'm retired. I'm getting close to being retired. And, or now I have enough money. I can finally do this the way I wanted to. Yep. So there's a lot of that, but there comes a point where they go, what's the point? Okay. I did it for me. It's kind of fun, but now what? But so to have a virtual way for them to go out and do things, if they're capable of it, a lot of them can't get their arms around it, but if they're capable of it, I think that would be a fantastic virtual venue for them. I think so too, man. And I think, you know, yeah, whether it's, you know, you're, if you want to, I mean, I've got friends who are, you know, my age and a little bit older who play in classic rock bands and they're not able to go, they, they live, they all have real jobs and they live remotely from each other and all that kind of stuff. So, but to have some place where you could go in a fun way, engage and do that and still be performing for people in a way that adapts to your lifestyle when you're a little older. And, you know, I, I think, I think that's one of the challenges right now is that the barrier to entry is still a little bit too high, right? Especially in the web three space. That that's what we're going to see, obviously, kind of go away over the next couple of years, where there will be platforms that are just as accessible to people as as Zoom and other things, right? That they can just hop on quickly and kind of engage that way. And I think that's when you'll see kind of more adoption from you know people who are less tech savvy and kind of in the space early. Yeah, he, my publishing champion used to do live gigs in Second Life. Oh boy. And he actually made money doing it. Just be him playing. But nonetheless, he had his own club there and he did really well for a a period of time. I don't know how long it lasted, but it probably couldn't have been more than a year. But I can remember him doing it and and him telling me that this is crazy. I don't understand how this is happening, but it's, it's working and he's making money. Oh, that's nuts. And you know, yeah, Second Life was a good, yeah, obviously that was, it's, the peak of that was relatively short lived, right? Yeah. As far as in the public consciousness, at least the wider public consciousness. But yeah, I mean, I think we'll see more of that. And of course, now it's not just going to obviously you have to come in with more of a strategy than just like you know, there's lots of clubs in the metaverse. You can go to a show. No one's going to care. It's where you tie, you know, your merch, your verts to that, right? Your vir- virtual merchandise, your NFTs, your music, your social tokens for access to certain things. It really becomes like and I, I'll, I'm looking for platforms to kind of holistically address that so you can come in and get all that instead of having to go, it's all fractionalized right now if you want to do that in the Web3 space for the most part. So having a place for people who are relatively normal in their understanding of technology can come have all that done for them and, and kind of enter in this space like a lot of the other, you know, artists who have teams around them are doing right now to manage that stuff. Because that's what in reality, that's what happened. That's what's happening for the bigger artists. So I don't know. I think it's going to be super interesting. And we'll see. It could be something that doesn't stick around, but my God, I don't know. The amount, I mean, D- Disney and everybody else, the amount of money that's coming into the space right now, I would be surprised if it wasn't wasn't the thing. You do so much and you have your, your fingers in a lot of places. What's the most fun for you? Oof, I'd say teaching definitely is the most, is still the most fun for me because all the stuff you and I are chatting about, I get to share with them, right? It's like, there's nothing's off limits with my students when it comes to tech. Like it might be in my advanced pro tools class, but we're talking about NFTs and everything else under the sun. I'm just, I'm all about prepping them to get jobs, right? So it's like in public schools, you often don't get to, you often, you might get what's current and what happened, but you don't always get what's coming. And that's really what they need is what's coming so they can be prepared for that. So I love teaching because of all that. And then similar startups. So talking with consulting with startups, hearing what they're doing, talking about pivots. So I just, it's like this three-dimensional chess game, you know, and it's, I didn't come from that space. I came from like you, from being a player and being an engineer and a producer. So I kind of bring my own little 
special, sometimes ignorant outlook on that, which kind of is helpful, I think, and some are naive, not ignorant. So, um, and now being with Lander so long, I obviously I've leveled up in that department, but yeah, I love that as well. So just people who are doing new cool stuff, you know, and whether it's going to, it's going to flame out and they'll pivot to something else or it's going to take off. I just, I just like helping. It's very similar to teaching, right? So that's kind of my thing. You have a very interesting approach to teaching and I think it's more should take it in that, yes, you're trying to prepare them to get jobs, but you're having them look into the future on what is that job going to be like? And schools in general don't operate that way because you have a curriculum that's always looking backwards yes, instead of forwards. And I guess it's the only way they could do it, really. But nonetheless, it, sure. it's not, you almost have to be off the cuff to, in order to make it work in the way that works best for a student. It's true. And it's cool. You know, like MTSU is a good example. The dean reached out to me the other day and we were chatting about NFT, all, all the stuff you and I've been chatting about and like, okay, we can't really do a course around this right now, but let's start bringing in guest speakers from the sandbox, guest speakers from the fabricant, like, you know, have it, you know, it's, we don't need to like try to train students on all this stuff that is fairly nascent technology, but by exposing it to them, they can go down the rabbit hole on their own. And, you know, ultimately they'll, they'll end up teaching the faculty, which is how that ends up working, which is the best part of all this. So because some faculty, you know, obviously need to level up as well. You can get kind of comfortable in that role if you've been doing it for a long time. So it's good for the students to get exposed to that stuff. So, yeah, I totally agree. MTSU is a great school, though, and I think it's an outlier when it comes down to it. It's funny because I've, pre-COVID anyway, I would talk to in different schools all over the world. And there were only a few that I could really count on one hand that had really great faculty. They were the real deal. Yeah. <laughs> you know, in that they had done it, they'd been there, done that, and and were teaching from experience rather than, you know, one step ahead of the students in the book, unfortunately. Yep. I taught at a few schools where that was just, they just pluck anybody up who, yeah, this, ugh, I don't know. I, I've had some, especially some of the for-profit schools, I think, did a disservice to students. Some of those schools aren't around anymore as a result of that. So I try to be very critical and very vocal about that kind of stuff when I see it, because I, you know, it's it's hard enough asking a student to pay money to go to school to learn audio engineering, giving all the amazing courses like your own that are out there in the world, right? So they better be getting a hell of a lot of value for that and connections through the faculty to gigs, right? I get my, I've got five students who've gotten gigs out in LA in the past year from Nashville, right? That's like, that's another, I got my first gigs in the industry through connections to the faculty, right? There's, it's more than just teaching, it's networking and all that stuff. And yeah, hopefully schools are, you know, investing in that the way MTSU thankfully is. So yeah, crazy. Okay. Last question. What's the best piece of advice that maybe you received from somebody or maybe you learned along the way? Ooh, tough question. I would say probably this, this came from two people. So same advice from two people who kind of are peas in a pod, which is Trent Reznor and Adrian Ballou, which was like, don't be afraid to break things. That's how both of those guys you found their sound, found their voice is by with technology specifically using it in ways it wasn't intended and thinking outside the box. And like people have done with Lander and they've done with other tools that we've been talking about, right? It's like, don't just think that something, you know, you're, you're, you're getting something and it's for that purpose and you're getting something else and it's for that purpose. Be creative, uh, you know, w- with tools and you'll find a path for yourself, not just as an artist. And I think, but as a, you know, on, as a career as well. You can find out more about Daniel at roland-studios.com. That's roland, R-O-W-L-A-N-D-studios.com. 
Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab or go to bobbyoinnercircle.com or you can find it on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyoinnercircle.com, you can also find a sign-up form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. Thank you.